Hello and welcome to Motorsport Now. My name is Jay Paveley. I'm a former kart racer turned racing driver and now I've gone to the dark side and rally, mostly in my Super Impreza and I won the Welsh Junior Tarmac Championship award and uh, I've also driven for Jaguar in their convertible F-type rally car, which was super fun. And this is episode one for my series two of Motorsport Now, which I just do for fun and just talk to anyone I could get my hands on. Having grown up in motorsport, I'm quite lucky to have met some wonderful people, so I'm pulling those strings in and interviewing them for this podcast. And today's guest is Jonathan Williams, as in the Williams F1 family, Frank Williams's son. Jonathan has always been in that kind of peripheral part of my life. Um, Dad used to take me to some of his Sparco meetings, and I think that's how they met. Um, but having met him a number of times now, he comes across as the most wonderfully intelligent and funny and witty person and I've actually had to re-record this intro because I don't think I gave it justice. Um, he does not hold back in this interview, he talks about the heritage collection that he's in charge of and he talks about how he feels when he watches Williams F1 compete, which not many people can relate to um, within his position and he really just tells it like it is and I really really appreciate it and I think you will too listening to this. It was one of my favourite interviews so without further ado here is the wonderful Jonathan Williams. Hi I am uh, Jonathan Williams and I am of the Williams family as in Formula One and I am the managing director of our heritage division so the cool, less stressful side of Formula One these days, playing with old cars. Yes, we'll, we'll come on to that for sure. Um, the first question for you is, for you, was there ever going to be anything else apart from some sort of involvement with racing or F1 in some shape or form? I would say unlikely. It certainly wasn't impressed upon us as children that we had to go down that path. And there are three of us, and one of whom, uh, my brother, from a professional side is completely detached from racing. It's obviously something he's passionate about because it's family, but interest, uh, career, none of that for him is racing. It's actually music, so something several steps away. But I think, I mean, everyone, regardless of whether their sort of career, their passion is hugely detached from what their origins are everyone is a product of their environment so your so your influences no matter how how far removed the origin of those influences is going to be when you're young when you're being brought up and what the people around you are doing so for us racing was always going to have the biggest chance of being the thing that finally got our attention and influence where we wanted to go and what we wanted to be so it was highly unlikely that, in my case, that I would have gravitated and latched on to being uh, something, somebody, in anything else. That's a really fantastic answer. And, and out of interest, does it still excite you when you go to a track or when you see a car that's just different in the collection? Like, does it still get your heart racing a bit? Or uh, It always will, yeah. I mean, there is something about a race. There's something about the tempo just all of those sort of sensual emotions of a race, just sort of noises, sounds, the excitement of people, the attention of people, the determination of people, the people at the core who are actually performing. So yes, I mean, it, it's sort of been interesting the last sort of couple of years of Williams sort of being at the back because in the sort of pressure from my point of view as a perception, the pressure 
has sort of moved more off track because the sort of more you struggle on track, the greater the pressures become off track because it sort of affects sort of how you can go about your business. Obviously, in theory, uh, the worse you're doing on track, the harder it is to come by the resource, the sort of investment that you need to go racing. But when you actually line up more, more often than not towards the back of the grid, there's sort of a, and when those lights are waiting to, to line up and go out, there's sort of a, from my point of view, there's sort of a feeling that, well, it can't really, it can get much worse because you could be out in a first corner pileup, for example, but there's a feeling that sort of the, there might be opportunities coming through other people's mistakes, their unreliability. So uh, it was always far more nerve wracking when those lights were lining up when you were on the front row because it seemed in that moment as if you had everything to lose and uh, before you could actually take the steps towards gaining the big prize. So, uh, but yeah, so there is always some sort of pressure and excitement mixed there, I think, when, when sort of you are deeply ensconced uh, into racing and when your livelihood, when your family is racing, there's always some sort of pressure there. But for me, and excitement as well, but for me, it sort of moves around and it's sort of very influenced by where you are on the performance scale of things. That's, that's what I find anyway. And tell us a bit more about the Heritage Collection, because you've got just a vast range of cars and you've had some incredible drivers over the years. You had, um, I've just jotted down a few here, you've had Alan Jones, you've had Rosberg, you've had Nigel Mansell, Senna, PK, you've had just the top names really. So the cars that you've got there, and I believe that a lot of them are still running, like you keep them running for track. Uh, yeah, I mean, not, I mean, unfortunately, a, a Formula One car isn't designed to be turnkey. So in terms of through the museum today, if you or I were there looking for a couple of cars to go on a track day, we'd have to sort of build sort of several weeks or a couple of months into like getting that car actually out. But yes, we do. I mean, the way that sort of the museum side of the collection is curated, and it's probably about 80% good on this uh on this policy is to, because of course the success predates massively by the better part of a decade, the idea of actually collecting cars and exhibiting them in a Williams museum. I mean, we started as a constructor in the late seventies. It was a decade later by the time we actually decided, well, perhaps we've now been around long enough and we plan to be here for many more years to come. We should actually build something museum wise on this. So, what we've tried to do is, is we've tried the names that you've just mentioned. We've tried to sort of identify sort of the most important and significant cars, so not just the first of the four, six, eight chassis that we would have used in one year or one cycle. Uh, the sort of historically the most significant, which usually means a car that won something big, but could also be a car that had a big moment, like a landmark moment that wasn't a paying result, for example, like uh, Keki Rosberg's record that stood for 17 years the first driver to reach an average lap speed of over 160 miles an hour on route to pole position for the 1985 british grand prix so as well as all of the the big williams wins you would have seen down the years winning big races british grand prix drivers championships it's an idea of getting those exact chassis into the museum and we're probably about 80 percent good on that some of them have gone elsewhere from a time before collecting was actually something that was on our radar but uh, that side of it is generally pretty good in terms of how we exhibit them and then beyond that there are the other sort of elements of heritage the prime sort of day in day out uh, modus operandi which is the commercial side whereby 
the sort of surplus of cars after our requirements are still very interesting, some historically highly significant cars in there. And as we're seeing other teams uh, do, Ferrari probably ahead of us, McLaren probably start after us in terms of reaching out into the idea that there are, there are some people who are, who are sort of uh, well-placed enough and have the great sort of passion and understanding of racing cars that that's what they want as, as something they can go to the track with and uh, enjoy or they can exhibit in their own sort of home or their own place and they can just look upon it with pride. So we sort of provide that service as well where we work, um, where we work to identify where these cars can find a home. And uh, uh, to the point that we've currently got, I think, uh, across eight owners, meaning some have more than one, we've got 11 cars currently in the operational side of the program. So that's 11 vintage Williams Formula One cars that at the request of the client or at the creation of Williams in terms of group events that we might create ourselves, uh, where we actually operate those cars. And uh, we've got cars going back just about to the 1980s in that program, all the way through to some uh, fairly recent stuff as well from the three from the three litre V10 era. So it's quite wide, it's quite wide ranging, but still growing. And for you, what's the most special car that you've seen comes into the collection? Oh. Good question. It's that's tough. I mean, it's uh, you said earlier these some some of what you and I want to talk about will be things I've spoken about before, and of course this is one that a lot of people. I mean, because when you're guiding people through the collection, and um, they probably sense a little bit of the tempo in your voice moving a little bit as perhaps because I mean you have to be your own biggest critic in this business right I and mean, when you've done a bad job you have to point at the car and say yeah we need to learn not to do that again because that was a complete you know what bucket that was like you know as you could say at the moment were kind of like the cars that were bringing into the museum in the last couple of years fit into that category the cars from the last two years on track you know we look at them and go yeah we want less of those and more of those Alan Jones, Nigel Mansell, Damon Hill sort of cars. Yeah, but people probably appreciate that, don't they? Because they don't want you just, because Formula One being the pinnacle of this. Oh, well, I'll be, I'll be, I mean, I'll be completely honest. I mean, I, it's a little bit ironic, let's say, looking at last year's FW42, you know, the worst Williams ever in terms of results. It's a little bit ironic looking at, because one thing that Patrick Head taught me was, and I think it's something that Martin Brundle occasionally still references. And that in one of in one of Brundle's very early grid walks, going back into the nineties, uh, when Williams were generally at the front, and he was doing a grid walk, and he decided to start at the back. I think it was at an, uh, a Grand Prix in Argentina, and he found Patrick Head, sort of the, really the architect of Williams's sort of technical uh, and sporting success, along with my father on the latter. Uh, he found Patrick just sort of nosing about the sort of the cars that you would find at the back of the grid in the late 90s. And so, Patrick, what are you doing here? And Patrick's response was very simple. He said, there is no such thing as a bad Formula One car. There's no such thing. Unfortunately, there's, there's this somewhat, as there is across all racing, there's this somewhat ironic pecking order that's divided by tenths of a second, half a second, etc. And if you're on the losing end of that scale, it's game over. But if you or I get to our dentist one and a half seconds late, he doesn't throw you out and say you've missed your appointment. But in Formula One, one and a half, or in racing, one and a half seconds kills you. So, so it's a little bit ironic because you stand next to last year's FW42, which was performance-wise terrible. But it's actually, from an aesthetic point of view, it's an incredibly appealing work of engineering just to look at it. But of course it went round 
every racetrack last year comfortably slower than its nine rivals in terms of the constructors championship so yeah so you do have so there are two ways of looking at formula one cars but you do have to be your own biggest critic and i certainly am and when i look at a 2019 fw42 i do sort of think yeah i'd much rather see the back of you and Thankfully, in very small steps, with its success of the FW40 through this year, we, we do seem to be doing that slowly but surely. But that's the way back at the moment, is just to take these sort of uh, considered steps. Because uh, if you panic into trying to rectify bad performance, you can often dig deeper than actually dig out. So, yeah, that's sort of where we are. But your question was actually about... What, what are my favourite cars? And somehow we're talking about the philosophy of, <laughs> of bad cars. But, uh, no, um, interesting. I mean, starting at the beginning, the family of FW07s, which were, were the cars that sort of really launched Williams right to the very front of the grid. It, the first Williams designed under the current team uh, that was the car and team by my father and Patrick Head, the FW06 through 1978, it showed the potential of the team but it was a conventional flat-bottomed car from, a, from an aero point of view. And Lotus had set the scene with ground effect then. So it could hold its own in some of the less ground effect focused circuits. But it showed sort of what the talent of this new iteration of the Williams team with a key point being Patrick Head on board could be. And when the 07 came along, I mean, it just in the summer of 1979, it just blew the opposition away. And if you had a successful design then, you could evolve it over several seasons. So you're talking about a car that first raced in the spring of 1979 and last raced in the spring of 1982 in its, and got a podium last time out. And in between that, won a handful of Grand Prix and three world championships, a driver's for Alan Jones and two constructors titles. So that's a favourite. Uh, there's something about those those monsters from the mid-1980s, the FW11s, the cars that sort of brought Nigel Mansell to fame alongside Nelson Piquet, and then powered by just the phenomenal Honda turbocharged engine, and then an engine in qualifying spec that was pushing 1,400 brake horsepower from a V6 one-and-a-half-litre engine. And then, of course, you get into the 90s, where you've got a fantastic sort of family of Renault-powered Patrick Head, Adrian Newey design cars, with a with a what's what of technical innovations and a who's who of the greatest drivers of the time. And then I'm also particularly fond of the BMW era because I was I had quite a bit of influence behind the scenes then on various matters. And Juan Pablo Montoya was somebody that I sort of played sort of uh, I, I, I had quite a bit to do in terms of his career at Williams, both getting him into Williams and then some of the time there. So the 2003 FW25, the car with which he won the Monaco Grand Prix and pushed Michael Schumacher for the Drivers' Championship as a favourite. And then, of course, it's, uh, it's not the prettiest thing to look at because it was that 2012 regulation focused on safety of the uh, step nose, which gave most of the cars that year, apart from McLaren, who came up with a vanity panel, as you would expect a Ron Dennis-led team to do to, like, <laughs> to come off to make it look better. They're always sort of ahead of most of us when it comes to making things look better in McLaren from that in terms of the presentation, the image of their team and you know, the attention to detail. You can always learn a lot from McLaren when it comes to attention to detail. Um, but Pastor Maldonado's race winning car, the FW34 from the 2012 Spanish Grand Prix is 
from our family's point of view, the, where, which is, we sort of call it the last race that my mother really attended as she wanted to attend races. She briefly ducked into the British Grand Prix a few months later, but wasn't well enough to actually be there as she usually was the whole weekend. Uh, and of course, we were sort of celebrating my father's 70th birthday. And uh, during his party on Saturday afternoon, word came through that you've inherited pole position because Lewis's car was out of fuel. So as the regulations state, that technically means it was underweight during the qualifying session. No, sorry, that's probably not the prime sort of thing. The sort of main reason is they can't take a fuel sample to actually check that it's sort of a match for the homologated fuel. Uh, but obviously, if you run out of fuel, you sort of get into that weight window as well. And of course, then we won the race the following day, so that's pretty special. But uh, there's no distinction in probably what I'm about to say, but because it's probably the most famous Williams ever, but there is something about the 1992 FW14B, Nigel Mansell's championship winning car. Just everything about it says racing car in every sense of the saying and just how extreme it was. And it's just the kind of car that when you see it, it basically, it, it almost says to you, I'm here to win, get out of my way. When you look at it, I mean, it just, everything, everything about it just says, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, uh, we have it in our museum parked next to its successor, the FW15C, which again, won both, both world championships, but was a much more elegantly tidied up aerodynamic version of, of, of the, of the concept. And it's interesting, the FW15C therefore looks female as most people assess cars to be, but there's something very masculine about an FW14B. It's just got that, and probably very appropriate for the driver who made it who, who made it famous, but it's just got that, it just looks like it's up for a fight. It just looks as a car like, right, you know, I'm here and you know, I'm, I'm basically, as I heard Keki Rosberg say about himself a couple of years ago, he said, because the other drivers knew that uh, if I can't go around you, I'll just go through you. And you kind of get the impression the FW14B to its rival cars sort of had that, that sort of effect, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm going to the front and if you're in the way, apart from at the 1992 Monaco Grand Prix, of course, but uh, that was one, that was one from an air and centre. You, you're, you're not going to overtake him in Monaco as we found out that year. But uh, yeah, there's probably, there's probably something very special about an FW14B. It's just, I mean, it's, uh, and it is acclaimed as the greatest Williams ever. I mean, when it's sort of, when people talk about that part of Williams, the cars, that's the car that people put up there and are most interested in. And what drivers stood out for you out of all of the Williams drivers that you've had? Is the one that you thought maybe growing up you saw them or you've looked back? Because obviously you know everything inside out in terms of the sport. I, yeah, well, I think the whole way through, and there is that saying, isn't there, the original and still the best, although I think it's sort of a a very close run thing. I mean, I think Alan Jones created the template or the mold for the Williams driver. And actually, I also answered this question with Alan Jones because I don't actually think it's, even though he's a world champion and a multiple winner and probably a driver who did retire too early, I still don't think he's actually spoken about how good he was. And uh, I mean, I think for three years in a row, 79, 80 and 81, I do believe, as do others, if you look back at sort of the auto course annuals, which were a Bible at the time of recording Grand Prix racing and a who's who of the world's greatest journalists 
contributing and their assessments of the drivers, their top 10 charts, it's always Jones at the top across those years. And, and so, and, and I think he really influenced the Williams drivers for years to come. There's a story that David Coulthard tells. Now, David joined us in 1993 as test driver, then had to step up to race driver in 1994. And uh, when he say, Damon and I would be sitting in debriefs, and it would be myself, Damon, our engineers, one or two other engineers, and Patrick, and we'd start trying to brainstorm a particular sort of problem. And you're always referencing things historically, and Patrick would start talking about saying, well, with Alan, we did this, and with Alan, we approached it like that. And I'd be thinking to myself, that makes sense because Alan Prost was here last year. That makes sense it's because it's the same evolution of car despite some regulation changes, 93 to 94. But then he would listen more closely and think, well, I drove that car last year and it, ah, he's talking about Alan Jones, not Alan Prost. So even like 12, 13, 14 years later, Patrick is still referencing sort of how we did things with Alan Jones. And of course, you can't be critical of that because around the time that this conversation was happening, we were pretty much the fastest team in Formula One. So it wasn't like we were like stuck in the past. We were sort of learning and taking key lessons from there and actually bringing them into the mix of how we went about our business back then. And so I really think he set the pace for Grand Prix drivers, for Williams drivers. But I think from our point of view, you couldn't really have this conversation without at least well mentioning quite a few names, but you certainly couldn't have it without mentioning probably the Brits. That's not being patriotic, it's just because they both are. It's the case of Nigel Mansell and Damon Hill. I mean, I mean Nigel had, some, had, had a trait very, very similar to Alan Jones, and probably with Ayrton Senna as well, but we, sadly we never really got to experience enough of this. But there was one, there was a, I mean, it's very, very rare for a Formula One team that, that 100% of the time that your car is on track you know that your car is being driven at minimum 100%. And there were probably only two drivers in the history of Williams that really gave us that day in, day out, pretty much entirely without fail. And that was Alan Jones and Nigel Mansell, just nothing but brute commitment and sheer force of will when those guys were driving the cars. And, and as Patrick would say, it's a very privileged and satisfying thing for an engineer because you therefore are left in no doubt as to the other angles that you need to assess in terms of your performance because you've got no because the driver being human it's quite hard to assess because humans have emotions they can hide them they can divert things whereas if you've actually got a car you can it's just it's just a machine you can actually get into it and assess it and it doesn't really hide secrets from you. You know, you can look at it and look at all the data. You can understand why it's doing this and where, where's the shortcoming. But with a human, it's sort of, you know, you can't always do that. Um, so I think that in the case of Jones and Mansell, very, very precious thing to actually have uh, drivers that actually you, you were just left in no doubt that your car was 100% on it, 100% of the time, a very, very special thing. And I think Damon was just just a, a, a very, very, just a superb human being as a racing driver to have in your team. And a phenomenal talent as well. I mean, you don't have a seven-year career, and within that seven-year career, win 22 Grand Prix, a world championship, and three other times finish top three in the driver's championship, regardless of your equipment, without being a truly superb racing driver. 
and from a human point of view, I mean, one of the best people probably to have in the garage, in the briefing room, because he was sort of able, I mean, all racing drivers have a, a great determination, which of course means they have to have an ego, but Damon, probably of all of the world champions we've had at Williams, was probably the one that never really sort of gave you the impression that he had, because it was just the way that he was in terms of his manner and his sort of just, just how he was socially was just superb. So I think those are probably the big three for Williams, Alan Jones, Nigel Mansell, Damon Hill. And I'm certainly very, very fond of all of them as people and as racing drivers. And just, I think on the behalf of not just myself, but Williams, very grateful that we had drivers, that we had men like that in our team because without them and the others, and there are many more that sort of, that could come into this part of our discussion. But without people like that, we wouldn't be where we are. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's, uh, it's it, like everything, it's, it's all about people before it's about anything else. And of course, the drivers are a very, very big part of that. In your opinion, because you've grown up in Formula One right from obviously a very, very early age, and you're still obviously hugely involved now, um, how do you think Formula One has changed? What's the kind of key things that have changed for you observing over the years and decades? I think when I, I mean, when I was, because I, I, I had to find my feet sort of elsewhere. I had to find my feet and I went off and swept the floors of, of the workshops of Formula 3000 teams, made cups of tea for mechanics and engineers in those buildings. I then sold spare parts for Formula 3 cars. I sort of went to a lot of go-kart races and you know, got my knuckles bloodied, spanner and go-karts, sprockets and engines like everyone else did. And, uh, and now, I mean, I'm not saying that this has gone away totally, but what, I'm, what, I'm, what I think one big change is that when I was in all of those environments, there were so many people, not just drivers, but people off the track, you know, people on the technical side, the sporting side, the admin side. And I would keep meeting those people the more I stepped up. And eventually in Formula One, I mean, the Formula 3000 team that I worked for, a couple of the mechanics there, guys that literally spanned F3000 cars on what felt like a five quid budget. I mean, two of those guys went on to be very heavy hitters in, in Formula One but I was like sweeping away their cut tie wraps and their spilt oil whilst they were basically trying to, trying to get 500 quid out of five quid, getting an F3000 car ready. And they, two of them went on to become very, very big hitters with Formula One teams in terms of serious parts of those organizations. And one of them won multiple world championships because he found a way to be with McLaren during the late 90s. They literally jumped just as the, as, as the Schumacher sort of steamroller took effect at Ferrari. He's had about seven years of winning world championships, but he and I were together in a, in a pretty sort of small F3000 team. I think you see less of that now because I think Formula One, in a way, has sort of, has sort of separated just a bit from its direct relationship with all other aspects of motor racing because Formula One which we've all hugely benefited from, and I guess through sort of superb vision, primarily by Bernie Eccleston, during the 80s, 90s, 2000s, it became such a, a juggernaut of sports. You need to look at the numbers of people that watch Formula One in any way they can, that there were probably people that sort of wanted to be Formula One people in terms of what they aspired to, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you saw less and less people thinking, right, to get to Formula One, I've got to start 
in karting, either as a mechanic or I've got to start. There were people just, it, it, so that sort of changed a bit. And I think sort of perhaps the purer side of the racing in terms of, in terms of just having just hundreds of people who were just pure racers there. There were lots of people that came, had to come in on the business side. You know, when Formula One became hugely commercial, you were casting your net wider in terms of technical skills. So you're getting people from other industries, not from up the racing ladder. And I, that's sort of one big change that I've really noticed. And it has given it more of a business-like feeling, I would say. But the one thing you have, sort of the caveat to that is, is that not just in racing, but in life, as we're all finding out now, everything changes. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not something to look back upon or be annoyed about. It's just that's sort of one of the big changes that I've sort of seen in my sort of span is that when I was growing up in it, nearly everyone that you sort of saw in the Formula One paddock, if you've been in a Formula 3000 paddock or a Formula 3 paddock or a touring car paddock or even a karting paddock, and then a few years, you can, you can, you can, you can I recognize that guy. Yeah, he's that Minardi mechanic. He used to be at Tony Kart when I was at the World Championships for karting. I recognize that guy. You know, he used to be at Tony Kart, and you would sort of see people like that. And uh, and I, I don't think. I mean, thing is, there's. I mean, I think we all now know what with COVID that the whole Formula One traveling circus to do these races is about two thousand people, which is a, a huge cut down. So I'm not. I'm not. I'm nowhere near claiming that. I know sort of the backgrounds of the thousands of people that make up the Formula One group, but I just sort of see and feel in my part of that, that that's sort of where quite a big change has been, but it, it's not for the better or for the worse. It's sort of, it's just sort of part of the evolution because I'm sure that there were people from let's say the sixties and seventies Formula One who would look at the times I'm referencing as my beginning, like sort of the nineties and say, God, that's very different to how we did it. So it's just uh, how it was for us. So it's just sort of constantly evolving. But that's sort of the big change that I've just noted. Just, just sort of the landscape of people is sort of probably what I've sort of noticed the most. I was going to ask you, do you get starstruck by cars? Because you know how some people just see a car and they're just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of very privileged that I am in not today because I'm in London, but nearly every day I can walk into a room and just literally, and it's, and, you know, I mean, essentially all of those great Williams cars I'm sort of in charge of. So I can just sort of go up to them and do what I, to an extent, please them. So, but I still get a little bit starstruck by those cars, but, but, you know, it's, but then if you do get starstruck, it's usually something which is quite out of reach. So, I mean, I'm a big Porsche guy. I've, I've, I've got a few Porsches. So there are Porsches that, ex I mean, I mean, anytime I, I mean, the cars that stop me in my tracks are probably uh, sort of like, I mean, the Porsche 917, I think, has a very strong argument for, regardless of period or category, the greatest racing car there's ever been. And a Porsche 917 from the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s will always stop me in my tracks. A bit like saying the FW14B is the greatest Williams. There's no, there's no distinction because the secret is massively out there and saying that probably the 1960s Ferrari GT car, the 250 GTO, is probably one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful forms that a, that a car, an automobile has ever taken. And the fact that it was simply a superb performer as well. I mean, that, that's always stopped me in my tracks car. I mean, I think of... Uh, I mean, I 
I, mean, I, mean, I did actually, about three or four weeks ago, I went to a, uh, I mean, I was about to say the word rivals there, but I remind myself that in this world of classic racing cars, you know, the rivalry's gone, you know, we're not really, we're actually all mates. So I, I went down to a gentleman, uh, a friend of mine called Paul Lanzanti, and had a look, and I had to go down to his facility where there's a couple of Williams cars there, but the room was full of McLarens from the, mostly from the Ayrton Senna era, those beautiful Honda-powered Marlboro cars. And of course, 30 years ago, anyone with the surname Williams snooping around those cars, you know, it would have been security card like that. But, uh, now there's no sort of security at all. And uh, it was, I mean, just things of beauty, absolute things of beauty. I mean, just, again, I think I mentioned earlier, just the attention to detail that the Ron Dennis led McLaren team was famous for. I mean, I mean, it brought us all along to higher standards, the way that Ron was doing things in the 80s and the 90s. And seeing, getting sort of hands on with Ayrton Senna cars, so that was just, uh, just, you know, touching, just looking at them uh, was, I mean, just things of beauty. And I think their sort of, their road car at the time, the Gordon Murray design McLaren F1 is, is a sensational car. I mean, it's, it's kind of endless, really. I mean, you can sort of, uh, when the uh, TVR Griffith, I think it was, this brutal sort of British little sports car came out in the early 90s. Uh, Patrick Head had one. He put his name on the list. And he, he, got, a, and he got a call one day from the, from the TV. I think this is the correct story. So if Patrick is listening, I hope I got the story right. He sort of, uh, uh, he got a call from the TVR dealer saying, Mr. Head, as you know, there's quite a waiting list for this car. We have had a cancellation, which means that the car is already built. So if you want your car now, as opposed to in six or eight months time. But, and so he said, yes, but, and of course the spec was pink champagne metallic with beige leather interior, but still. Sitting in the Williams car park, it looked a hell of a car. And being 17, 18 years old, it was like when sort of Renault Clio 16 valves were the things that were really exciting me back then. Seeing this thing parked next to them in the Williams car park was so cool. But I remember one night at our country house when I was living with my parents, we were having a dinner party. And I know Patrick was on the guest list, Damon and Georgie Hill were on the guest list. And I knew that Ron and Lisa Dennis were also on the guest list. And Patrick arrived in the, in the TVR. And of course, I was in the bay window looking out over the drive and it was getting to be dusk. And I was just looking at this pink, at this TVR. And all of a sudden I just saw coming down the driveway some headlights and you could just, from the headlights, you could just know it was something different. And as it got closer, it was Ron Dennis in a McLaren F1, the new road car. And you just imagine this thing coming at you through the dusk in that, in that kind of fantastic gray that I think quite a few of the factory cars were painted in. And it parked next to the TVR. I haven't looked at a TVR like I did since. You know, it's like <laughs> Ron Dennis parked next to the TVR Griffith. So apologies if you're a TVR Griffith fan out there, but when you park a McLaren F1 next to it, Sadly, your your attention, or well, my attention, was like it was like you know, ah, no TVR, no more. That's what I want. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so I do kind of remember that moment of like right, that, that McLaren F1 coming up the driveway of our house and parking, and uh, yeah, really cool, really cool. That's amazing. And just I won't, I really won't keep you long. But um, I, I don't know. Have you done any racing? I should know this. 
not in car. I did. I did club karting at Shennington uh, <coughs> and one or two other tracks in the mid nineteen nineties. But it was more. Uh, it, it was more just. I mean, uh, it was more for fun and a little bit just to try and educate myself. I never sort of thought when I was like seventeen or when I was seventeen, eighteen when I was doing it. I never actually thought, you know, maybe I'll try and do something. Uh, no, so I've never. I mean, I've driven. I've spent. I mean, I've, I've spent three days of my life in a racing car. About twenty years ago, uh, I had a fantastic day at Bedford, courtesy of Jonathan Palmer, where I had Justin Wilson, bless him, as my instructor, and I had an after beautiful sunny August afternoon driving a Palmer Audi car. And then last year, I finally got to drive a Williams. I drove one of Kitty Rosberg's early nineteen eighties Cosworth powered cars. So. I've only ever physically driven a racing car for three days of my life, once with Jonathan and Justin in a Formula Palmer Audi, and then twice last year driving Keki's car at those Williams events. So I've never actually raced a car. No, oh, fair enough. Well, you've got so much... That's stupid to let me do that. <laughs> Karun Chandok is trying to... Get, he's a very dear friend and a partner on the heritage side of things, and... Uh, put me in his simulator last week, which, you know, see, basically his wife has lost part of their living room to their simulator. And it's, and then I think the likes of him and Steve Soper and Daria Frankitti and Darren Turner, they'll race each other online and stuff and they'll take it very seriously. It's even like, which your dad would appreciate, it's even kind of like, you know, boots and gloves. Part of it. Like, what do you need boots for to drive, race with a proper kind of like, oh, um, yeah, so... Yes, but he's kind of talking about, yeah, maybe one day we, because I've got a couple of classic Porsches, some racing ones. He said, yeah, well, well and I've driven them at the Goodwood Festival, but well, I've driven A1 at the Goodwood Festival, but uh, he said, we, need to, we should perhaps do members or revival and just get one of the old sort of 1970s Porsche race cars out there and like share it or something like that. But I'm uh, yeah, so, but yeah, racing does mean potentially damaging them. And I kind of love my little Porsches too much to maybe let Karun Chandler wild in them but we'll wait and see he, he's a very good pair of hands to be fair oh he does yeah I mean, he he won he won at goodwood last year in the revival in, in a mclaren can-am car so yeah he actually he knows exactly what he's doing yeah, I think so. we do wind him up about crunching gears though he certainly likes paddles he doesn't really like a gear stick you know he's, no he, he, certainly, he certainly likes the electronics to do most of the work if he's listening he'll get the joke <laughs> he, certainly, yeah, he certainly likes yeah he's not too keen on the whole stick shift as the americans would call it so uh yeah he doesn't like that <laughs> many posh cars over the years that's what it is probably yeah, yeah. he probably has yeah yeah <laughs> what an interview with jonathan williams i really enjoyed that as i always say but jonathan adds so much of a dimension to formula one and motorsport that so many people just don't get close to and uh, he's, as you can see, he really, really knows his stuff about cars. Um, and what about Karun Chandok um, with his boots on playing on a simulator? I'm going to have to tell Ross to pull his uh, socks up and get some proper gear on next time he goes on Dirt Rally. But anyway, thank you so much for listening to my first podcast back on Motorsport Now Series 2. I will be releasing many more interviews and I'm really excited to hear about what you had to say about my first podcast back. Please get in touch, share, like, if you really can. It'd be great if you can leave a review um, and just pop a few stars on there. Any suggestions, get in touch on my Instagram at Jade Paveley Motorsport. Thank you so much to my sponsors, Forest Experience Riley School, 
and to Group B Motorsport. Speak to you guys soon.